Jesus Christ is not honored as he ought to be honored. The greatest injustice in the United States, in the world, in all of history, is that God is not honored and not worshipped as he ought to be worshipped. The Son of God, our Creator, the sustainer of life, deserves all honor and worship. And do you know what the greatest injustice is? Is that he is not worshipped. In fact, Jesus was scorned, he was hated, and he was crucified. And ever since his resurrection, his followers have been persecuted. And, not, and the single greatest evil in the universe is not rape, it's not genocide, it's not holocausts, it's not world hunger, it's not murder, and it's not even abortion. Hitler, Mussolini, Kim Jong-un, Genghis Khan, or any other dictator that you can think of is not the greatest evil in the universe. We have to understand that the greatest evil perpetrated in God's universe is that God is not honored as he ought to be honored, and Jesus Christ is not given his due place. It is imperative that this is our starting point for this morning. And we must understand that this is the most important issue that Christians are to ever be fighting for. That must be the most important issue to us. We must stand for the glory of God. Christians, we need to be known for God's glory in every aspect of our life. We have to fight for the glory of God because that's what we're about. And then, and only then, can we understand that any other specific evil, every other specific injustice that flows from that initial problem, right, that God is not honored as he ought to be honored, that we understand that all other evils are incited by that evil. And maybe at the top of that list of other evil, evils, that stem from not giving God glory is abortion. This morning, in light of what is on the ballot on Tuesday here in California, I was asked to give a biblical understanding of what God thinks about abortion. And if you do not know, there's a ballot measure up for a vote on Tuesday that if passed will codify women's right to access to abortion and it'll be protected under California's constitution if it does pass. All under the guise of reproductive rights. I'm not going to preach a sermon on that specific proposition. I will not even tell you how to vote on Tuesday. That's not what we're here for. The point of this morning is to see what God's word has to say and then let, its, let, its, let God's word have its effect in your life. You know, as I was preparing for this morning, I, I debated whether or not to make a PowerPoint that shows the atrocity. But for your sake, I, I watched those videos and saw those pictures on your behalf this week. And it got to the point where I had to stop because I was getting sick to my stomach. I came inside and I told Christy, you know, I was done for the night. It's because of the anguish I was experiencing due to the images that I saw. 
And I had to work through and I had to talk to Christy about how sad that made me. And I'm not going to show the images because my goal is not to shock you. But I do want to expose the incomprehensible evil of abortion. But I also want to shepherd. I want to shepherd you as well. And I know I'm talking to a lot of different people here this morning. I don't know each and every one of your stories. So I want to speak in a way that's careful and truthful. And I'm under no illusion that I'm going to solve close to 50 years of debate since Roe versus Wade in just one morning. But I do hope to help you think about what's at stake. Now, as I was thinking about it this week, I figured there might be three categories of people here this morning or even watching online. The first group of people are those who maybe have had an abortion. It may be a small group, but I want to talk to you first. Before we get into this, because it's important for me to communicate to you, or even if you are pregnant and you're thinking about having an abortion. And I cannot emphasize it enough. And I need to let you know how much Christ loves you. And that he died for you. And that he wants to forgive you. And it's his desire and it's my desire that you feel the joy and the power of forgiveness. And maybe that person is not a woman, but it's a man who pressured a woman into having an abortion. Both of you are victims of abortion. The first victim is the child who is dead. But the second victim is not dead, but damaged. And I want you to know that there is help for you. There's not judgment for you here this morning. There's love. There's support. There's care. And in this church, there's people who want to hug you and help you and to work with you and to cry with you. And you will not find a place more loving than the, and supportive than this church. So I want to say at the outset, because there could be a tremendous amount of guilt in that person's life, hearing this message who's gone through an abortion. And I want you to know from the get-go that we're all at the foot of the cross. Whether you're an abstinence for lifer or whether you've had four abortions, we all need the gospel. We all need the grace of God. God loves you and he wants to forgive you. And I need you to know, first off, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a gift for you this morning. And we all need the gospel. And the second group of people, who are probably the majority of people in this room, are with me on the topic. Right? You're anti-abortion. You're pro-life or however you want to label yourself. And again, I think that's the majority of individuals in this room. We all share the same stance against abortion. And my goal for you today is that you would care more. I want you to care more and I want you to see this from God's perspective. The goal of this morning is that I want every one of you to see the magnitude of this awful reality. And I want you to do something about it. And I refuse to tell you what to do. I refuse to tell you what to do because it's more than just an election in two days. I think you have a responsibility as a Christian to do something. And that's where we'll land at the end of our morning together. 
And I don't know what your so what is going to be. I don't know what the application of this in your life will look like. Maybe there's a young person here who will become an OBGYN and will refuse to perform abortions. Maybe you'll be that person. Maybe you'll open up a clinic to help moms, teen moms. Maybe you'll volunteer or work at a pregnancy center. Maybe you'll do ultrasounds to show mom and dads that there's life inside that womb. I don't know. Maybe you'll open up your home to rescue those women, to give them financial support, to give them a place to live when their families turn on them. I don't know what your application is going to be at the end of this. Maybe you'll adopt babies. Maybe you'll speak truth to those who are deceived. But I hope that you are all motivated by compassion and mercy and biblical discernment to think what God thinks and to say what God says. And then I suppose there could be a third group of people here this morning or watching. Third group might be believers who consider themselves pro-choice. There are whole groups and organizations of them. Christians who approve or advocate for the termination of life within the womb, twisting scriptures and claiming them for their own agenda. Really, they, those, those groups of Christians have been so pragmatic to the tides of culture that they have confused themselves by advocating for something that God clearly hates. And I want to be merciful to them too. I want you to hear the authoritative word of God and let it change you. Again, I know that the majority of people here falls into that second group. But this morning, we're talking about one of the greatest injustices that history has ever known. Let me give you a taste of the scope of what I'm talking about. According to the Pew Research Center and the Guttenmacher's Institute's data from the year 2020, they show us that 2,549 human beings are aborted in the United States every single day. 2,549 every day are ripped from the safety of their mother's belly by sterile surgical instruments and put in the trash. That's 2,549 a day. 17,843 a week, 71,372 a month, over 930,000 a year. Since abortion was decriminalized with the Supreme Court's decision in 1973, it's estimated that 63 million abortions have happened. You know, when the Dodgers have a sold-out crowd, their stadium can hold 56,000 people. So imagine... The, the Dodgers' 162-game regular season, imagine that all their games were held at Chavez Ravine. It would take seven years to reach 63 million. 63 million children aborted. 63 million lives ended since 1973. That's like wiping out the entire population of California more than one and a half times. So to say that this is a great injustice is an understatement. Again, more than 63 million aborted, but there are untold millions of women suffering the emotional and the physical and the psychological consequences of their decisions. And abortion is an industry of death, and we're talking an industry in the billions of dollars. 
and somehow it's embedded its way into the mainstream. Abortion has found a home under the guise of personal rights and progress. Abortion has become one of the most common surgical procedures performed on women in the United States. 30% of all babies conceived in America are killed by abortion. Just let that number sink in. One out of three pregnancies end in abortion. So this morning, we're not talking about politics. We're not talking about choice or women's rights. We're talking about the murder of the unborn. And there's so many different lies that can be spun around this. And you've heard all the justifications for abortion. The lie telling you that you, know, you don't want to see a, a baby born into poverty. Or to grow up and, and live a life of crime. And people cite the drop in crime rate statistics to vindicate their action. Right? We don't want to see children who have otherwise will live horrible lives. Living in neighborhoods filled with drugs and crime. All lies. Lies. If you're pregnant or you know someone who's pregnant, don't believe the lies. Don't believe them. Don't believe the lie of unwanted babies. I talked to my wife last week and I got her okay to say this. We'll take that baby. We'll take that baby. And there's hundreds of families between this church and churches who are like-minded who will take those babies. There's no such thing as an unwanted baby. Christians have been rescuing babies since the first century in the Roman world and they're still doing it today and they're still willing to do it today. When people defend abortion, it often boils down to a sense of, of differences between a baby who's inside the womb and outside the womb. Right? There's usually four differences here. First off, they say, you know, the baby is aborted, that the baby who is aborted is usually just it's just smaller. Right? It's smaller than a baby who's outside the womb, but that's a horrible argument. You know, many of you have had friends who've reached out to you or maybe you yourself have had a premature baby. You know, I've heard stories and read stories of, of babies born at 21 weeks weighing just, just a little over a pound and they fight in the NICU and with their tubes in their noses and the bassinet warmers and you have to gear up to see them because they're so vulnerable. And the years go by and before you know it, they're celebrating their fifth birthday like nothing ever happened. So the size of the baby isn't a factor. The second series of differences are pe that people identify is the level of development. The level of development. But that's a dangerous and slippery ethical slope. Think back to when you graduated high school, right? You were far more intelligent then, right? <laughs> but that argument, in all seriousness, it falls hopelessly short Right, take that argument to people of slower mental capacity or to the disabled. Who is going to argue for their destruction because they have less development? Nobody. The third difference that people talk about is environment. They say it's okay to crush and cut up a baby inside the mother's womb, but, not, uh, but it's unacceptable to do that outside the womb. Right? You'd go to jail if you did that to a baby who's outside the womb. But a human's right and privileges do not change based upon your environment. And the fourth discrepancy or difference, they say, because the baby's womb, because the baby is in the womb, it's dependent upon the mother for everything. Okay? 
I have a three-year-old. She cannot make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She's dependent upon me. Think of your own life. Maybe you have parents, aging parents, who might be on dialysis or some life-sustaining medicine, and their dependence upon that medication or upon those procedures doesn't make them any less worth in their life. It's a foolish argument. And so there's no such thing as an unwanted baby, and the series of differences clearly do not stand and so that's the logical uh, um, argument against abortion. And you know what? There's, there's people, there's unbelievers who are against abortion. And they might try to convince people by showing uh, the raw images, the videos of abortions, right? But I don't think I, I want to, sh- I don't have to show you pictures or videos of drunkenness or adultery for you to understand the evil behind them, right? This morning, again, we're talking about the murder of the unborn, An abortion is an act of violence that kills a living human being and we need a biblical understanding of the injustice of abortion. That's my introduction. So the title of this morning is Unmasking the Evil of Abortion. And I have 11 points this morning. Don't worry, we'll go through them quickly. 11 points, biblical principles against abortion that I want to share with you. Number one... And, and Linda graciously gave us both sides of the notes to, to write all you want. Number one, abortion destroys what God created. Abortion destroys what God created. Church, conception is an act of God. Genesis 29, 31 does not stand alone in the Bible as, he, as it identifies God's sovereignty over the womb. Genesis 29, 31 says this, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. God's creative wisdom and power is always identified as sovereign, sovereign over the womb in in the Bible. The Lord is the one who opens and closes the womb. There's lots of verses that you could use here, but Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, accompanied with Galatians 1.15, both speak of God knowing beforehand his foreknowledge of personhood inside the womb. Listen to the words of Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So when did that happen, Jeremiah? It happened when he was still in the protection of his mother's womb. God knew him intimately before he was born. God had a plan for his life, and that's the case with every single life, every conception, every single birth. Paul spoke in a similar language in Galatians chapter 1 verse 15. He says, but he, uh, but when he... I'm sorry, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God's hand is on all people at the time of their conception. He's the one who initiates that opening life-giving act. He sustains and holds together all things by his creative, sovereign power. And he has a plan for each and every life. And he's the one, according to 1 Timothy 6.13, who gives life to all things. God is the giver of life. And abortion destroys what God has created. And I know what you're thinking. You have to answer the question, Matt. When does life begin? 
Well, let's take a sample of some medical textbooks, if you will. And it may be a shock to hear, but medical standards uh, seem pretty clear. I'll just read a few excerpts out of some textbooks from classes I surely would have failed if I was in med school. (laughs) Keith Moore's The Developing Human Clinically Oriented Embryology 10th Edition says this, Human development begins at fertilization, when the sperm fuses with an egg and to form a single cell, the zygote. This highly specialized, tatipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. In human embryology and teratology, third edition, the authors say this, quote, although life is a continuous process, fertilization is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and female pronuclei blend in the oocyte, end quote. Even Patton's Foundation of Embryology, sixth edition, says this, The time of fertilization represents the starting point in the history of life or on the or ontogeny of the individual. I have nine other textbooks I could read from. But in addition to textbooks, expert testimony really is profound. This is from Professor Micheline Matthews Roth of Harvard University testifying before Congress. She says this, It is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. End quote. The Apostle Paul knew that. He knew it because he understood that God's creative sovereign foreknowledge had his hand on his life from the very beginning. Because it's God who opens the womb. And so we can say with confidence, number one, that abortion destroys what God created because God gets the credit for creating, giving, and sustaining life. Number two, abortion rejects God's gifts. Abortion rejects God's gifts. Psalm 127 verse 3 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are like a reward, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks to his enemies in the gate. Children are identified not as a burden, not as a difficulty, not as an optional aspect of God's creation of man and woman, but he calls them a gift from the Lord. This gift of children, God identifies as strengthening to the man, glory to the woman, a heritage to the family. So to reject that gift in such a violent way is a shame. And a rejection of God's good gift is to, is to, compl- is a, is to completely reject Jesus' teaching of what he said in Luke 18, suffer not the children, let them come to me. And that passage is such a beautiful statement about Christ's compassion and love to the little children. The Bible shows children as gifts from God, and they are. Children from the start are gifts. At the moment of fertilization, a new and unique human being comes into existence with its own uh, unique, distinct uh, genetic code. It's amazing. 23 chromosomes from the father, 23 from the mother, combined to result in a brand new, totally unique genetic combination. 
the mother, right, she has her own genetic code for her own hair color and eye color and body makeup. But her unborn child from the very moment of fertilization has a separate genetic code that's unique to them. And there's enough information in that tiny little cell to control human growth and development for the rest of its life. Precisely at the moment of conception. That is an incredible gift from God. It's an incredible display of sovereignty and wisdom and power. And if you fast forward from conception just a few days into pregnancy, implantation into the lining of the uterus triggers a chemical substance to be emitted which weakens the woman's immune system within the uterus so this tiny little body will not be rejected by the mother's body. And so if this tiny little embryo was simply an extension of the woman's body, right? Say maybe a mass of tissue, there would be no need to locally disable the woman's immunity. But a few days after implantation, implantation, gastrulation begins. And you say, what in the world is gastrulation? Let me tell you. It's been fascinating this week, studying this, by the way. (laughs) Gastrulation is the process by which an embryo is transformed from a single ball of cells into a multi-layered organism. By folding in on itself, it begins to take the shape and, 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 uh, and, and differentiate its cells into specialized cell types. Cells that become muscles and skeletons and intestines begin on the outside, but during this dramatic change, they make their permanent home on the inside. One scientist says, it's not birth, it's not death or marriage, but gastrulation that is truly the most important time in your life. What a wonderful demonstration of wisdom and creativity and design of God. All part of God's creative gift. The gift of life in giving children. And all of this happens far before the woman ever knows she's pregnant. And side note, it's, and that all happens well within the legal statuses of our country to destroy that life. Three weeks from fertilization, the heart starts beating. It settles into this regular rhythm within the next four days, and it'll continue to do so for its entire life. The heart will beat roughly 54 million times before that baby is even born. Eyes begin to form. The brain divides into three sections, all at three weeks. At four weeks, things become even more complex. An average of one million neurons are produced every minute. Hand formation begins around day 31. Two days later, the feet begin taking shape. A retina develops and the eyes gain pigment and the nose starts to elevate. You get kidneys at the fifth week and at the sixth week, the brain emits measurable brain impulses, which happens to be the legal standard for life for people who are in the hospital measured by EEGs. All of that just six weeks from fertilization. Small bodily movements can be observed at this time. The embryo responds reflexively to stimulus and may even be able to feel pain at that time. A professor at Gothenburg University in Sweden says, even at this early in pregnancy, the embryo is extremely lively and in constant motion, sleeping for only brief periods. Bone ossification has begun. Lips have appeared. All 20 teeth buds are in the gums. The diaphragm is formed. The kidneys are producing urine and the stomach is producing gastric juices. 
There's distinct leg movements. After seven weeks, hiccups have been observed. Ovaries are identifiable. A four-chambered heart has reached its completion. Fingers and toes distinctly separated. Knee joints are present, and the embryo develops the ability to smell. All before the eighth week of pregnancy. And you're saying, why are you going through all of this detail? If you visit the Planned Parenthood website, you find a chart almost boasting that most abortions happen before eight weeks. And we just walked the first eight weeks. That's an astronomical number of abortions that take place within those first eight weeks. Those are the hands. Those are the hearts. That's the skin and bones that are chopped up, poisoned, or suctioned out of the protection that God has designed for that baby. It's violence perpetrated in the name of mercy or in the name of freedom or the name of personal autonomy and it's horrible exploitation. Ultimately, abortion rejects God's gifts. Number three, abortion attempts to dethrone God as the maker of his people. Psalm 100 verse three, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Abortion attempts to dethrone God as the maker of his people because it refuses to recognize that God has rights over you and your body. It's not about your rights when you become a Christian. It's not about your desires or your will. You become a slave of God. You belong to him. Your body is his. Your life is his. And that's why abortion is such a radical assault on the kingship of God. He is the maker. He is the sustainer of his people. He's the one who makes them. He is the one who sustains them. He gives them life and only he has the prerogative to take it. And Planned Parenthood says that 55% of abortions happen at or before eight weeks. But get this, they brag, they boast that only 1.4% of abortions happen after 20 weeks. This is when viability, that word viability becomes a crucial word. As science and medicine improves over time, viability becomes earlier and earlier in pregnancy. And the, and the definition of, of uh, viability becomes broader and broader. So what Planned Parenthood is saying is that 1.4% of abortions occur after 20 weeks. And at that point, there's a pretty good chance of survival outside the womb. And you think, okay, 1.4%, that's not that bad. But I have a calculator. If you do the calculations, out of the 2,549 children aborted today, 36 were viable. In the last year, that means over 13,000 were viable. 13,000 babies that had a great chance of survival outside the womb. That is shocking. Planned Parenthood, that is no defense. That's an abomination. That is a usurping of God as the maker and sustainer of his people. Number four, abortion refuses to recognize the wonder and the, the wonder of life and the power of God. I'll say it again if you're taking notes. Abortion refuses to recognize the wonder of life and the power of God. I remember the first day I met Mackenzie, my firstborn. Well, I remember the first day I met all my kids. But I remember... 
MJ. She was so beautiful. Little chubby hands, cute little nose. And I worshiped God the moment I saw her. I thought, this is just amazing. And I marveled. I marveled. And as we took pictures and videos over the years and her little mannerisms and personality that she's had since day one, she still does today. She still does those things now 10 years later. And when I think back, looking at the little ultrasound monitor and getting to see grainy black and white pictures of hers and listening to her little heart beat a million times a minute, and I, re- it, I rejoiced then and I rejoice now thinking about, back on those times. That was baby MJ. And more than that, I know that was the wonder of life and the power of God on demonstration. If you have your Bibles, go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 13. David writes, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That word in verse 13, you wove me. It speaks of the ingenuity and creativity of God in creation and sustaining of life inside the womb. What we have here, what we see is a a theology of foreknowledge. A theology of foreknowledge that stands in opposition to the crime of abortion. Because abortion refuses to recognize the wonder of life and the power of God. When a pregnant woman is in this room and we have a couple, gentlemen, you should stand up and bless God. I'd advise you not to go up to her and touch her belly. Please don't do that. But rather stand back and bless God in your heart. Bless God when you see a pregnant woman. Christians more than any other people should recognize the beauty and the wisdom and the precision and the intricacy of God's creation and giving of life. This is a wonder of life and the power of God on display. Number five, Abortion is an assault on the image of God and therefore the dignity of man. I know we're going through these quickly and if you miss one, just ask your neighbor or come talk to me after. But we'll look at James chapter 3. But first, Genesis 1, 27 says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Abortion is an assault on the image of God because men and women are made in the image of God and therefore they have dignity. Theologians call this the imagio Dei. As a result of being made in God's image, we bear a thumbprint of God upon us, meaning we bear in our person uh, volition and wisdom. Not that God has made us little deities, though we might think we are sometimes, or little big gods, but we are made in the likeness of God. We're not just tissue. We're not just the result of some evolutionary advancement. We think, we reason, we feel, we cry, we can create, we can fight, we write poetry, we love. 
all things that God does because he made us in his image. That's a powerful reminder of abortion's assault on the image of God. Because when God creates man and then destroys men, man destroys what God has made. He then undermines the dignity of man. Flip to James chapter 3, verse 9. James 3, 9 says this. With it, he's talking about the tongue. Our, uh, we, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Right, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If cussing out your friend and cursing him and mocking him is wrong because he's made in the image of God, how much more is the destruction of human life? By a great act of violence inside the mother's womb, how much more is that an assault on the likeness of God and the dignity of man? Number six, abortion sees the unborn tissue... uh, Abortion sees the unborn as tissue, where God calls them people and children. Abortion sees the unborn as tissue, where God calls them people and children. And we've talked about this some already, and I have tons of verses, but Isaiah chapter 49, 1 would be an example. It says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Or you could take a sampling again of Jeremiah 1.5 or what we've already seen in Galatians 1.15. All evidence that God sees the unborn as people. But I think it's important for you to write this reference down. Exodus chapter 21 verse 22 through 24. It's from the Israelite civil code of law thousands of thousands of years ago. And we do have a similar law on our books. Right? This is what it says. If there are two men fighting... And one of them hits a pregnant woman, so her child is born, and there's no harm. He'll suffer a fine and the husband, that the husband will impose on him. And it'll go to the judge's determination. But what if the baby is harmed? If something worse happens as a result of that blow, the penalty is life for life. Life for life is still... The law in California, under the penal code 187, if you murder a pregnant woman, you can be charged with a double homicide. Unless you're a doctor in an abortion clinic. In Genesis 16, verse 4, talking about Hagar and Sarai, the Hebrew uses the same word for a baby, whether it's inside the womb or outside the womb. It's a child inside and it's a child outside. And our scientific and in our scientific age has given us more permission to destroy a zygote than it has to kill a baby. In Luke chapter 1, verse 41, Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary, and the baby leaps within her womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and bless, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Expression, emotion, and joy, all attributed to this baby's leaping at the sound of the Messiah. These babies are more than just a clump of cells or the mother's tissue. Number seven, abortion fails to fear the judgment of God. Abortion fails to fear the judgment of God. Genesis 9, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man, by his, I'm sorry, Whoever sheds the blood of man, his blood shall be shed for God. Made 
in his own image. Those who shed the blood of the innocent, their blood will be shed. Exodus 21 again, life for life. That's the principle. God will judge murderers because it's his responsibility and right to take life when you take a life. God will judge for that. Insert a ton of verses here to see God as judge. Acts 17, 31, Hebrews 9, 27, James 4, 12, 1 Corinthians 4, John 7, 24, Luke 6, 37, John 4, 13 through 14, and the list goes on. God is judge, and it is his right. You get the picture. Number eight, abortion rejects God's care for the helpless. Abortion rejects God's care for the helpless. Psalm 82, verse 3 and 4, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The modern abortion promoters couch abortion in terms of mercy and care for women. It's the opposite, in fact, because abortion rejects God's care for the helpless. Over 20 times in the Old Testament, you hear God's anger towards the shedding of innocent blood. Psalm 82, we just read it, speaks that just, we, we, we ought to stand for justice for the weak, that justice for the disenfranchised. And so who is weaker? Who is more susceptible? Who is in a greater place of need than that of an unborn child? Isaiah 49.15 is an excellent example of compassion. Can a woman forget her nursing child or the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but God will not forget you. God's care and compassion extends to children, even the unborn. Number nine, abortion misunderstands God's plan for suffering. Abortion misunderstands God's plan for suffering. It's, it's been said that abortion is the lesser of two evils, right? It's poverty or a single mother or the difficulties that the mom may face and the baby may face. But if you understand the gospel, if you understand that abortion misunderstands God's plan for suffering, listen, suffering is not to be fled from. Suffering is to be embraced as the will of God for our lives. Suffering is a tool that God uses to sanctify us. And as God sustains us through our suffering, our faithfulness proves our sonship. Our sonship excuse me. That's what suffering is. And you could certainly understand the dilemma of a young woman who says, well, my dad is going to kill me if he finds out about this. What will people say about me? What will the church say about me? My life is gone. But I want that young woman to understand, and my hope is that you'd be able to communicate that there's, in a, in a merciful and compassionate way, that yes, your life may be difficult, and the cost of the discipleship is high, but the reward is worth it. The reward is worth it. It's worth the suffering. It's worth the pain. You know, but I won't be able to finish school. Listen, that doesn't stand a chance against the potential that God has for that life and the plan that he has for their life, the baby and the mothers. It's not the lesser of two evils. Number 10, it's a quick one. Abortion is murder. Abortion is murder. Exodus 20 verse 13 says, you shall not kill. 
You shall not murder. And a quick dictionary definition of what murder is. It's the unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another. Abortion is always an act of great violence. And it's a personal killing. Let me do one more point that's important. I was going to start with it. But now that we're here at the end, I'll end with it. Number 11. Abortion exists because God's design for sexuality, marriage, and family has been abandoned. God's design for sexuality, marriage, and family has been abandoned. That's fundamental, right? You understand that. Abortion exists because something else is broken in our society. Something more fundamental, something that's pre-existent. Right? God has a design for sexuality, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1-7 through says that you are to avoid sexual immorality. Sexual immorality should not even be named among you. Avoid it at all costs. Paul wants you to understand immorality is not for God's people. That's not God's plan for your life. That we would radically alter our understanding of abortion or the existence of abortion because God did not design it to be this way. That's not what sexuality is for. You could look at the principles of marriage in Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5, but abortion exists because God's design for marriage has been corrupted at its very core, as well as God's plan for the, for the family. Dozens of Proverbs speak to this, as well as Genesis chapter 1, 27 through 28. God's design for the family has been abandoned by our society, therefore abortion exists where it shouldn't. And there's so much, so much more that could be said about abortion. I'm going to stand up here after a service to point you to some good resources. As you think through this issue, as you wrestle through scripture to, to, to know where do you stand on this topic. And this has been debated for decades. And we could talk about instances where the woman's life has been threatened in the pregnancy or rape or incest. Those rare and hard cases that abortion advocates bring up. You know, I told you at the morning, at the beginning, that I'm not going to tell you what to do or I'm not going to give you application for this morning. Instead, I want to close with you thinking about the implications about the principles of what I shared this morning. Seriously, there are thousands of ways to apply this to your life. But let me give you three implications quickly. Number one, the gospel is our only hope. The gospel is our only hope. You could crusade against abortion the rest of your life, but if you didn't have the gospel, it'd be worthless. You could save 10,000 babies somehow, but if you didn't have the gospel, if it wasn't the gospel that you were championing, then it wouldn't matter in eternity. And I want you to have uh, this as you walk away from here. I want you to feel the weight and the heaviness of this incomprehensible evil, that the gospel is our only hope. Not political reform, not violence. It's the gospel. It's the only thing that can change the heart of sinful man. It's the only thing that can change a sinful society. And it happens by the new birth, one person at a time. It's the gospel. Another implication to jot down, truth is our responsibility. 
truth is our responsibility. Christians should take the, mile, the moral high ground and it shouldn't be silent ones. Truth is your responsibility. You have been entrusted with the word of the Lord and the wisdom of God and you're called to represent that in society. You are both salt and light. You're not to be both salt and light. You are salt and light. That's what Jesus says. You already are salt and light. And so you need to represent the truth of God in all principles of sexuality and marriage and morality and abortion. Your light should shine in such a way that the slaughter of little ones is seen as, an atro- as the atrocity that it actually is. You're not passive. You're not apathetic. But your heart is broken because this truth is your responsibility. The third implication is that you would engage your mind, your heart, your hands, and your money to exposing this evil. And I can't tell you again how to do that. It's different for every one of you. But it's our responsibility. If the truth is ours, then the action is ours as well. And we must do that in a way that honors God by obeying his commands. All the while representing kindness and compassion and mercy the mercy of God to a hurting world that needs the gospel. And so if we can do that, then this morning was well spent. Let me pray. Father, we give you honor. We see you in your proper place. You are creator and the giver of life, sustainer of life. We recognize that. As we think about these these issues in our society, I pray that you would give us hearts of compassion and kindness and mercy to those who are lost. May we we be champions of your glory. May we, we be champions of your glory as we share the gospel. For that is that's the highest priority. We want to see people in our culture glorifying you. We want to see them worshiping you. Grow that desire in our hearts. Give us opportunities to share the gospel with a lost world who is in the dark. As we are salt and light, may we season those around us and be like a lighthouse, a city on the hill, as we proclaim the truth to those who do not know you. God, we love you so much. And help us as we think through these issues. Give us a good rest of the morning in your name. Amen.